This is Beg to Differ, and I am Mona Charon, joined today and in the future by Linda Chavez, Bill Galston, and Damon Linker. Welcome, one and all. This is going to be a roundtable discussion. It's going to model civil disagreement uh, and, uh, and a little bit of a deeper dive into, we hope, into some of the issues that face us. Uh, rather than the uh, surface analysis that is uh, that proliferates on the internet and, of course, on cable TV. So welcome, one and all, and let's jump right in. Uh, there's There are a few things going on. <laughs> <laughs> Understatement of the year. <laughs> so we have an impeachment inquiry, um, and uh, let's start, uh, if we can, with Bill, who wrote a column saying that um, impeachment is not a good idea. And so first, Bill, I want to ask you um, whether you mean this as a prudential matter or as a moral matter, or how are you evaluating this? Is it just that it's not likely to succeed and therefore will hurt Democrats, or how are you viewing this? As a moral matter, I have no objection to it whatsoever. As a prudential measure, I have no end of objection. Uh, my reasoning is very simple. Uh, under current circumstances, I think it is virtually inconceivable that 20 Republicans in the Senate out of 53 will break ranks with their party and their president uh, to join with 47 Democrats to remove President Trump from office. Because you need two-thirds. Because you need two-thirds. That being, that being the case, the almost certain outcome of a full-fledged impeachment effort will be the House serving as the prosecutor charging the president and the Senate serving as jury acquitting the president, mm -hmm. which will then give him the opportunity to say once again, A, I've been exonerated, and B, you see, it was a partisan witch hunt all along. I support an inquiry, but the major good done by the inquiry will be the development of facts, mm. you know, a bill of particulars that then, and this is my recommendation, could be folded into a formal motion of censure, which the rules and laws of both the House and the Senate permit a single House to do. That censure motion would then be the basis of a public information campaign uh, that Democrats would use throughout uh, calendar 2020 leading up to the November election. Bottom line, if President Trump is to be removed from office, the American people will have to do it because the Senate of the United States will not. Linda, are you at all surprised by the polling that we've seen in the last couple of weeks uh, where, you know, everything was rock solid, not moving. Trump's approval rating, you know, varied very little over the two and a half years that he's been in office. And then suddenly with this impeachment inquiry, there's been dramatic movement. I mean, it's not overwhelming, but there's certainly been noticeable movement, especially among independents. Um, so do you think Bill is right that um, that absolutely nothing changes? 
No, I don't think Bill is right. Um, I think I'm a little older than you, Bill. I'm, I don't know how much older. I'm, I doubt that. I'm, I'm, I'm 72, so. I'm 73. Oh, so you're all, oh well, okay. Well, but you, <laughs> True confessions. All right, but, but, Podcast confessions. but you did not work in the House Judiciary Committee during impeachment of Richard M. Nixon, and I did. And I will tell you. You got you, me there. And I will tell you that at the beginning of the impeachment process of Richard Nixon, it didn't look like there would ever be a chance that you'd get the House to vote impeachment. Of course, they never did uh, because Nixon, for whatever uh, his faults, he did have enough honor to step aside, um, you know, when he was faced with uh, impeachment by the House of Representatives. And uh, But the point is that before the Irvin Committee started having the hearings, and we got to hear from individuals, including John Dean and others, uh, in the White House, one would not have thought that Richard Nixon could possibly have been impeached. He won, at the time, the largest landslide in presidential history, uh, both in terms of the popular vote and the Electoral College. And, you know, all this nonsense about how impeachment, you know, overturns the will of the people and then overturns the election. Of course, by definition, an impeachment does that. And it does that for good constitutional reasons, because the person in office, having been duly elected, has violated the oath of his office. So I'm a little more optimistic than you are, Bill. Um, I still hope that uh, there are men and women uh, of good uh, moral character who will look at the facts, and if the facts emerge as they appear to be emerging with respect to what it is Donald Trump has done, I think you will start to see defections. And I think once the dam breaks, you're going to see a lot of them. A a recent poll showed that 40 percent of Republicans do not believe that President Trump asked uh, President Zelensky to investigate Joe Biden, even though the um, transcript, or not transcript, not exact transcript, but the report on the call uh, with Zelensky that was released by the White House uh, clearly states that he did. Um, is, Is it hopeless that you ever are going to break through these silos of information that people live in? Uh, yeah, as uh, kind of the, the spring chicken here, uh, I, I turn uh, 50 just next week, so I haven't uh, lived quite as much uh, as uh, some of you have, I guess. It, it strikes me as pretty remarkable that what we have here is uh, an electorate, at least Trump's voters, Republican voters, who seem willing to uh, you know flip on a dime whenever he says... Uh, to the electorate that, uh, you know, this is a witch hunt. It isn't true when uh, half the time he admits it and seems proud of it. In fact, today he was asked uh, about his conversation with the, uh, the Ukrainian president and then volunteered that he would like very much for the Chinese government to investigate Joe Biden and his son Hunter as well. So it's like he's daring the uh, the voters uh, to uh, to accept what he's doing and uh, do something about it. So in that respect, I guess I would say that I'm a little bit uh, maybe between uh, Bill and Linda on the question of impeachment and whether this makes sense. I certainly share Bill's apprehensions about it, but I also think that uh, there's a way in which... It, Trump is so over the top, so extreme in his 
testing of the boundaries of the acceptable that the Democrats sort of have no choice but to take a stand uh, Mm -hmm. here on this issue and to say sort of, you know, to this line and no further. And it be precisely because Trump's uh, actions are so beyond the bounds of the normal, at least up until three years ago, um, you have started to see some wavering in the early polling. And it doesn't take a collapse of Trump's support. What it would take is his own party uh, uh, approval, which has been hovering in the high 80s for a long time, for that to drop to, say, maybe 60 or so. That would still be a majority of Republicans, but it would be a softening enough, perhaps, that you could get some senators willing to take the risk. Now, I'm sure we'll have opportunity to talk about the details of that a little bit more, but that's in general how I see it. Interesting. You know, one of the things about the, uh, you mentioned the witch hunt, and uh, it seems to me that could go one of two ways. On the one hand, people could say, Yes, he said the same thing about the Mueller report, and that turned out to be correct, at least from the Republicans' point of view. They believe that it turned out that the Mueller report showed nothing, came up empty. I don't actually happen to think that's right, but that is the narrative that most Republicans accept. There's another possibility, which is they could look at this set of facts and say, well, wait a second, this time we actually heard him do it. And he's again saying it's a witch hunt and there's nothing there. Maybe it wasn't a witch hunt last time either. So that's that's how that might go. But let's, if you, if we can, just begin to explore this question of impunity, because I think this is very important. Um, I'm not a Democrat, um, but... I, I sympathize we'll with We'll get you days. there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of luck. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I come a long way, baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait till we get into, into uh, Elizabeth Warren. Oh, boy. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, but, but I understand the, the feeling that, uh, and, and Damon expressed it very well, which is, the Democrats can, many Democrats, look, some Democrats are just extremely partisan and they want to hurt Trump because he's a Republican. They'd probably want to hurt Marco Rubio or any Republican. But there are a lot of Democrats who genuinely think we cannot just let this go. That We cannot allow this kind of impunity because it is just the most unprecedented abuse of power. And uh, it's dangerous. Uh, and let's talk, if we can, about the... Um, story that came out this week also in the the New York Times, confirmed, by the way, by a lot of other news sources, including Fox, uh, that the president ordered uh, the border to be closed between the U.S. and Mexico, uh, that he uh, said that we should uh, shoot migrants who are throwing stones, and when told that this was illegal, said, well, then shoot them in the legs. Um, of course, the absurd stuff about filling a moat with alligators and poisonous snakes, building a fence with uh, uh, an electrified fence with uh, with spikes and on and on and on. Um, that sense that there are no limits on what he can do, what he can order um, is alarming, isn't it? It, it does suggest that there is a there, there's a need for some kind of response other than, Censure. So that other kind of re- response would be a failed effort to remove the president from office. Uh, I cannot speak with authority about the conscience of the Republican Party. I'll leave that to others. 
I think it's a metaphysical question as to whether one exists at this point and the returns from the past three years have not been encouraging. I think we'd all agree. Uh, the argument that there is a breaking point may turn out to be correct, uh, but it has been a long time since 1974 and a lot shorter time since 1998. And in 1998, almost no Democrats supported the articles of impeachment against Bill Clinton and not a single Democratic pre uh, senator, senator voted for either one of the resolutions. So that's the other possible model. My fear, I'll confess that this reflects more than a decade of scholarship, is that we are a much more polarized country than we were in 1974. Uh, the Democratic Party is more ideologically uniform than it was, and the Republican Party is much, much more ideologically uniform than it was in 1974. You know, the days of liberal Republicans and moderate or conservative Democrats, those days are history. Uh, and I'll... I'll confess that I need to be persuaded that people who have unswervingly backed President Trump through the nominating process, through the general election, and through three outrageous years of his presidency are suddenly going to get religion on how much is too much. You may be right, Linda, but I think the burden of proof is on you to provide some evidence that that's going to happen. Well, part of the problem, of course, is that uh, many Republicans, including me, by the way, approve of some of his policies. Not all of them, uh, surely, but um, I do agree with him on certain issues. I do think we are overregulated. I did like uh, the idea of cutting corporate tax rates. I didn't think it was such a great idea to do it the way they did it, but there are things I agree with. Mm -hmm. uh, I generally approve the judges that have been okay. nominated. So, uh, so that's, you know, that is always the, the devil's bargain. Uh, I think there are an awfully lot of Republicans who say, I think he's really uh, over the top. I, th I don't think he has good character. But, you know, there's always the judges, and I agree with him on policy. So the tipping point, I think, is going to have to be one in which they decide that they're not, that the po either that he shifts some on policy, which he has shown some signs of doing uh, at various points, or that they just cannot abide in terms of the foreign policy choices he's making. I mean, he's, look, John Bolton left the administration. Uh, there are not very many Republicans who are enthusiastic about uh, his little bromance, uh, Trump's little bromance with Kim Jong-un. Uh, I think the idea that Ukraine is now up for sale, essentially, he's, you know, basically saying if you want, uh, if you want some military support, you're going to have to uh, show me the dirt on Joe Biden. This concerns people. Ukraine is, in fact, the bulwark, less, <laughs> should I use that word, uh, between uh, Russia and Europe. And, and so, you know, I, I, I'm not 100 percent sure that even on policy, they're not going to get worried enough. And I think it's, it is going to be the foreign policy hawks who begin to say this is, um, this is too dangerous. This is too dangerous to the United States standing in the world. We uh, shall see. Bill, boy, does he have a skeptical look on his face. <laughs> <laughs> look, uh, you know, one, uh, I'll, I'll yield to Damon in 30 seconds. The, you know, one thing as I've aged, I've come to realize more and more about political discussion and political argument is they are, we are all making wagers on the future. Right? And 
we are all trying to estimate the probability of a range of possible outcomes. And so disagreement about the future course of sparked by current events is, is bound to be, to be colloquial all over the map. I freely acknowledge that Linda may be right in her prediction. Uh, I'm not yet willing to attach a P, a probability estimate of more than 0.2 to it, but you know, would, it, would it astonish me if it worked out the way you say? No, it would not. Okay, it would surprise can, me. Let, let's switch now to the politics of this. Um, well, there are a couple of things that have, uh, that have happened uh, in the past week. Biden did finally speak up um, and gave a speech, uh, I think today, um, saying that, uh, uh, you know, condemning Trump's attacks on him and talking about the issue of not supporting Ukraine against the Russian bear and so on and so forth. He made a number of points that I think were a little, were quite overdue. So there's that. We also had Bernie Sanders uh, is sick. Bernie Sanders had a serious health emergency. A lot of people are saying, oh gosh, that sounds like Trump. <laughs> a lot of people. It is speculated that he had a heart attack <laughs> uh, because apparently you don't put in stents. I don't, I'm not a doctor, don't claim to be one, but, um, but apparently it was a serious thing, um, which is... You know, and of course, we wish him a speedy recovery, uh, but it does have political implications. Uh, if you are a progressive and you're choosing be, who to support in the Democratic primary between Bernie and Elizabeth Sanders, I think this is bound Elizabeth to— Elizabeth Warren. Uh, sorry, Elizabeth Warren. Freudian. Yeah. It's bound to influence—it's bound to influence that. Now, but I also want to pursue something with Damon because you wrote a piece saying— um, that Biden will be fatally harmed by this whole Ukraine story uh, because the mud will splash back on Biden and he does, it, it isn't, he's not pure as the driven snow and the Hunter Biden's deal with uh, Burisma was, uh, it looks bad, even if we don't really know the details. And um, therefore Biden will be, sunk by this. And um, so I have two questions for you and for everybody who, who wants to jump in on this. My first question is, up against someone like Trump, who, who corruption is his middle name, and his, whose family is profiting every day in various ways from power, um, is it the case that any opponent of his who has any sleazy or unsavory thing in his background is automatically disqualified, but Trump isn't? Are those the rules? <laughs> Um, and then, and then, second, um, you know, Trump can use Biden's son's bad judgment and Biden's bad judgment, perhaps, um, though there's been no evidence of wrongdoing yet. But let's say something shows up; he could use that against Biden. But he has things he can use against any Democratic nominee. I mean, he can use Pocahontas against Elizabeth Warren. Um, the fact that Trump may use something as ammunition doesn't, Damon, mean that they're sunk, does it? No, not, of course not. I, I would, I would uh, preface what I'm going to say by responding to what Bill said earlier about prognostications and uh, tea leave reading and so forth. Uh, you know, when I wrote the column 
saying that uh, the Ukraine business would sink Biden. I said it in the way that you do as a columnist sometimes. You kind of amp up the certainty of the prediction uh, for the sake of uh, getting people to read it and engage with it. In the end, do I know that that's going to happen? Of course not. It's a guess. But here's the reason why I make that guess. We're living in a political era, as Bill has noted, that is marked by sharp polarization. And in a very polarized environment, it's very easy for politics to become negative partisanship, which means you don't get people to vote for me by making a case for why I'm so great. You make the case by demonizing the other side and making people be, if not hate the other side more, because frankly... In the case of Trump, that would be a challenge, but you <laughs> you demonize the other side enough that they get pulled down to your level if you're Trump. So how did Trump manage to win against Hillary Clinton? Well, if you looked at her favorability ratings about two years before the 2016 election, shortly after she left office as Secretary of State, they were very high. And she looked like a very strong contender for the presidency. By the time Trump and the Republicans got done with her, she was down with favorability ratings at very, very low by historic standards and almost, if you can believe it, as low as Trump's. And then we had a ball game. The trick for Trump and the reason why I think he was so animated about doing this outrageous business with the president of Ukraine is that he recognizes that Biden is the most formidable opponent on the Democratic side, among other reasons, because he's a little more moderate, a little more centrist than the other Democrats, but also because he has a very high favorability rating. People like him. How do you have any chance if you're down perennially, as Trump is, around 42% approval? Your only hope is to drag Biden down. And how do you do that? Convince people through insinuation, lies, and other things that he's not as good as you think he is. In fact, he's just like me. He has this son who he got a $50,000 a month gig working for a Ukraine energy conglomerate while he, Biden, was vice president. That sounds pretty scummy. And do I think it should be disqualifying? Of course not. So it's not a matter of like, is that the rule now? No, the rule is whoever wins, wins. And that is how you win playing a game of negative partisanship. At least that would be the, the reason why I made the argument I did in that column. Okay. Do, I want to ask all of you, uh, if, does anybody want to comment on that before I move on to a different question? Well, I, I would just say that I agree with Damon that it does potentially hurt uh, Biden, uh, although the behavior of one's adult children, I don't think should, you know, the sins of the father shouldn't visit on the children, but neither should the sins of the children visit on the father. And unless there is some evidence, which I don't think even Trump has made an actual claim of what it is that uh, Joe Biden is supposed to have done, other than the ridiculous uh, comments about firing the uh, weak uh, prosecutor in Ukraine. So, but it, it's going to depend on, I think, in part on how the other Democratic candidates handle it. And so far, they haven't been terrible. I mean, they haven't wanted to step too much into uh, Trump's wheelhouse on this. One and, of them has been terrible. 
who Kamala, Kamala, Harris. Kamala Harris has been bad. But, um, <laughs> she has just, you know, when she was asked about it, she yeah. said, oh, well, you know, we really do have to look into this. And yeah, I know. I, well, <laughs> she's willing to let Trump do her dirty right, work. Well, yeah, Kamala Harris has a likability problem as well. <laughs> and by the way, I mean, one of the things we never want to talk about in politics, and it had a real reflection on, on Hillary Clinton, is likability is you know, one of the single most important qualifications of a candidate. I mean, it just is. That's just Mm -hmm. the way the American people are. And, you know, we can't stand Trump, but a lot of people liked him. They watched that show of his and they liked him. They liked his brashness. Um, And people do like Joe Biden. He is very likable. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that this, um, this, I keep calling it a transcript, this readout um, of the uh, call with Zelensky revealed has gotten very little attention, but, well, it's gotten some, but I I think this is just mind-boggling and and potentially pretty disturbing. I'd like to hear your views, all of you. The first thing that Trump said to Zelensky after saying, you know, we do a lot for Ukraine, you know, and uh, it's not always reciprocal, and I, you know, I need a favor... The first thing he mentioned was not go after Joe Biden. The first thing he mentioned was he wanted to have information about CrowdStrike and the server. This is a reference to one of the wackier conspiracy theories, utterly, by the way, debunked in the Mueller report, that the actual people who interfered in the election in 2016 were Ukrainians, and they interfered on behalf of Hillary Clinton and and framed the Russians to make it look like the Russians had been at, oh, yeah. And so here's the thing. Trump mentions this, and Rudy Giuliani has been on about it. it the frightening thing is he might really believe this. And, you know, he has a long history of circulating conspiracy theories. The, the, he was an anti-vaxxer and, you know, JFK, you know, the, 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 the you know, Rafael Cruz had something to do with JFK. You name it. I mean, he, he's gone in for a million of them. But I always thought until now that this was just his way of appealing to the bourgeoisie. Uh, but it may very well be that he's actually a real conspiracy theorist himself. Absolutely. And by the way, you know, one of the things that's so bizarre about this, Ukraine really hacked the United States. Do people forget who was ahead in the race and who really didn't need a lot of help, but didn't seem at the time? It was Hillary Clinton. She was leading. You know, nobody, the idea that a country in in Ukraine of all countries is going to come in and intervene. And, you know, they're fighting a a shooting war in uh, eastern Ukraine. Their, Their territory is occupied in Crimea. And the way they're going to fight the Russians is to hack the American election. I mean, it's, it's, it's so insane. It's so crazy that it is very difficult to understand how anybody could believe it. But, Mona, you are absolutely right. He is a conspiracy nut. He mm-hmm. just is. And I'm speaking of Donald Trump. Well, the question, the question of what Donald Trump actually believes I think is not a question that any of us in this room can opine on with authority. And I'm not even sure that Donald Trump can. Uh, But the spread of conspiracy theories is a solid indicator of a political disease Mm -hmm. that's, you know, that's now, you know, rife in our politics. Uh, And uh, I think that, that underneath 
conspiracy theory is a profound mistrust, right? What you see isn't what you get. What you see isn't real. There are dark forces arrayed against us. And I think I think this whole deep state discourse is part of the dark forces that we can't see arrayed against us. It's not a belief so much as it is a mindset about the way the world actually works. And one thing I can say based on the way Trump speaks and the way he acts is that he does not believe that there are any opinions that are not in the last analysis political. That is to say, there is, you know, that opinions that are expressed in politics have no truth value. Mm -hmm. They are either instrumental to supporting him or instrumental to opposing him. And if a conspiracy theory happens to further what he takes to be his cause at any particular moment, uh, he will utter it, you know, he will spread it. Uh, he may even believe it until it's no longer convenient to believe it. But I think the question, I, I think the question of truth or falsity is almost the wrong question to be putting to this president at this point in our political history. Although he has many, many enablers uh, in the Republican Party and in the Republic and in the conservative media ecosystem uh, who are also willing to tra trade in this sort of thing. But now I'm going to make my liberal friends unhappy because I'm going to compare Donald Trump to Elizabeth Warren. And um, Bill, as you were talking, I was thinking, yeah, this, this conspiratorial mindset, the idea that there are these powerful dark forces that are at work in our society um, is actually a part of Elizabeth Warren's message, too. She pitches things as, you know, that she is a populist of the left. She says it's, she, has, she has different villains. You know, for her, it's evil corporations, corporate interests, and the government people who are in league with them. But her view is that it's, you know, the, the, the virtuous little guy uh, against whom the system is rigged doesn't stand a chance in this miserable, corporate-dominated plutocracy that we live in, mm -hmm. and that, uh, that she is the one to stick up for the little guy, and that's why we need to elect her. And that, I would argue, is... You know, there are many differences, obviously, between the two candidates, but that's a similarity. But Damon, let me bring you in on that. What do you, what do you make of my of my comparison? Oh, certainly, I agree that she is more of a populist, like Bernie Sanders. The two of them, I think, especially in in the the group of I don't know a dozen or so people who are running right now for the Democratic nomination. Um, uh, Warren and Sanders are clearly the most populist, and one mark of populism is to sort of divide the people into the real people and then the enemies of those real people. Um, and uh, for her, as you said, the the kind of the enemies of the people are like for Sanders, bankers, uh, corporate interests, uh, the wealthy in general, and really the, the rigged system that is supposedly there to, uh, to benefit the interests of those powerful uh, forces. Now, I would say, as someone 
uh, I don't know, about an inch or two to the left of center, <laughs> really not that far, um, that I do have some sympathy. You know, one one aspect of the populist message is the reason why it resonates is because it has some truth to it, both on the right and the left. And uh, for the left, uh, there has been a lot of neglect of the struggles of working people over the last uh, few decades in this country. And there is a lot of pent-up frustration. A lot of it, when it comes to economics, has been uh, unleashed and not really addressed very much since the financial crisis of 2008 and the way the Obama administration handled it. Um, and, and, and then the very slow recovery that followed from it, some of which was caused by the Republicans dragging their feet on uh, stimulus. So there's a lot of blame to go around. My problem with Warren, which we could maybe allow us to pivot to someone else responding to this. I mean, my problem with Warren, even as someone on the center left, is that I would appreciate it if she had, say, one or two major policy proposals to address some of these problems rather than, say, 15, uh, which strikes me as transparently uh, kind of irresponsible to to, you know, be so much uh, of a, an advocate for really dramatic change and huge uh, increases in spending and uh, just just things that obviously will never pass all of them. I mean, again, one or two would be an enormous achievement in our current polarized politics, let alone to propose quite that many. It raises expectations. And I guess in this respect, I might be a little more conservative in that I think it's pretty dangerous for politics to raise expectations and then dash them. Mm. So so that makes me a, a little uh, apprehensive about what Warren is doing rhetorically. Uh, but, you know, there is time for her to try to backtrack uh, as things go along if she is the nominee. The only problem is in our day and age, everything gets recorded and gets uh, potentially used in negative ads by the other side. Bill, you wanted to respond? Yeah, uh, that was what's known in the trade as a bracing question, Mona. <laughs> but I will not. I will not embrace it. Uh, <laughs> I will. I will, however, respond to it. Uh, I am no fan of populism. Indeed, I published a book last year, you know, tracing its defects and the threat it poses to certain things that I care a lot about. Uh, but I think it's important to distinguish between populism on the one hand and conspiracy theories on the other. Uh, populism may be a heightening of something real, as, you know, as Damon suggested. But to suggest that there's any kind of equivalence, including a moral equivalence, between populism and, let us say, birtherism, or the comet pizza story, or, you know, or, or the, you know, or this, what is it, crowd strike conspiracy? In other words, uh, in other words, there is, a, there is a difference between taking something and heightening it and just making it up because it sounds right and is consistent with your world view. Uh, I was uh, – I'd add that you don't have to be a Marxist theoretician you know, to believe that the balance between what I'll old-fashionedly call capital and labor has changed very significantly in the past 50 years – and not to the advantage of working people who have had a hard time defending their interests and whose interests were certainly not well defended in the financial crisis or its aftermath. So, you know, so I think that 
Warren's core argument has a respectable foundation. I disagree with virtually every policy proposal that she has made. But to say that it's not a real problem, I think, is to engage in an act of denial. I just, 10 seconds, I just wanted to say that uh, I wanted to be clear. I agree with Bill about the kind of the transition from conspiracy theories to populism, that they are, obviously they overlap a lot, but uh, uh, conspiracy theory uh, thinking in politics is kind of a a worse thing and uh, much more dangerous in the end than populism. Okay, can can I just make, uh, and I'm just going to give 10 seconds and then I'm turning Mm -hmm. over to Linda. I believe, uh, you're right, both of you, that, that they're not equivalent. Certainly the kinds of things that Trump traffics in are, are much more uh, egregious. On the other hand, I do maintain, and I stick with this, that populism leads to conspiracy thinking. They're very closely linked because po- the populist appeal is essentially not that we are a great nation with competing interests and we have problems and we have to solve them and there are you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, gears that, 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 that are go- going at the same time. Yeah. No, the, the populist message is that powerful special interests are, are controlling everything to their own advantage and to everyone else's disadvantage. And that sort of thinking, which is completely wrong. I mean, if you look at the way, I mean, not that the wealthy don't have more power than the middle class or the poor, obviously they do. But in a world where the wealthy special interests were controlling everything, you would not see, you know, 65% of our budget being spent sending checks to people, which is what we do in this country. So um, anyway, that the, the, Linda, I, I, I wanted to get me. on this because I think there's another problem, and it's it's one that we don't like to have to talk about, and that is that it's not just politicians, it's not just you know, the conspiracy theories and populism, something has happened to the American people. And I think part of the reason these conspiracy theories uh, hit home is that Americans have decided now that they are victims. This was not always the case. I just looked back. I just looked up an old song. I loved this song. It was 1997, Tub Thumping. Did anybody remember Tub Thumping? <laughs> I get knocked down, but I get up again. You are never going to keep me down. This was a Is this song. a country and western song? No, oh, oh, no. Oh. It was just a pop song in 1997. But that was who we used to be. We used to be um, a people that, you know, we always knew there were some, you know, odds and things didn't always go our way. But we always believed in ourselves. We, You know, and this was what Ronald Reagan, who Mona and I both work for, uh, this is what he specialized in, this sort of happy uh you know, warrior, Hubert Humphrey as well, the happy warrior. It isn't that there aren't forces arrayed and the power doesn't, you know, is, is evenly distributed throughout the society, much less all the benefits um, of wealth are certainly not even, evenly distributed. But Americans always believed that if you worked hard, that you could, in fact, make it in America. And that has been sort of a bedrock. And by the way, it was true. It was true. And and <laughs> I, will, I will agree with Bill that things have changed because of the nature of work has changed dramatically. And work is not, you know, it used to be if you showed up on time and, and were physically strong, you could make a good living and, and have a job the rest of your life and provide for your family. And that's not necessarily the case, although immigrants by the way, managed to to do that uh, rather well, uh, and their kids end up 
you know, doing better. But there, there's been this fundamental change in who we are as a people. I would. I just wanted to add to that. That's a good point. Although I would, I think that it it's broader than just America, and that raises interesting questions of its own about why this would be happening in other places too. But all of the populist movements around the world kind of build out of a a kind of victim mentality. There's always a narrative about how we're victimized by some powerful force and need to. Uh, steal ourselves to confront it. I mean, uh, at least at the level of what the politicians say. So Putin says he's a victim of the West. Mm -hmm. Uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary says he's a victim of the EU. Uh, The Brexit voters believe they're also a victim of the EU. Uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil believes he's a victim of other forces in Latin Central America. And Trump, of course, believes America has been screwed over by the post-Cold War world where we're, you know, carrying all the weight of everyone's defense. This kind of, uh, this, this feeling of being put upon, wounded, uh, a victim of forces out there that we have to marshal the strength to fight is uh, resonating everywhere. And it's, yeah, I agree with Linda. It, it's strange and it definitely is different. Just very quickly, I too agree with Linda, uh, but I think I can add some specificity to the general description. I don't think we've been the same country since 9-11. I think in the broadest sense, Osama bin Laden won and we lost. Uh, I think that because, among other things, it induced us to enter into wars uh, that either lacked justification or lacked an end or both. Uh, It induced us to take our eye off the ball, which was the rise of China, and to focus on a matter which, although it created great destruction in the American homeland, was in the last analysis peripheral to our national interests rather than central. Uh, It led to a great diversion of our military resources, and it also led to fundamental distortions in federal budgeting. Remember, When George W. Bush took office, Alan Greenspan was wringing his hands at the prospect that we would pay down the national debt and then how would we be, you know, the liquidity provider to the world. And, you know, and suddenly, you know, after 20 years, we are faced with a fundamental fiscal imbalance that nobody wants to to resolve. And while America slept, China rose. And now we don't know what to do about it. Uh, So, yeah, things have changed. And when you pile a financial crisis and a slow recovery and an unbalanced recovery on top of that, uh, people are very unhappy. They were not unhappy in the 1990s. I worked for President Bill Clinton since everybody around the table (laughs) has worked for president. Uh, And uh, we were a different country in the 1990s. Liberal democracy was on the march. The economy was growing at 3.5%. A year, real incomes were rising. Uh, everybody was getting ahead, and uh, 9/11 destroyed all of that. Well, just the, the, a little anecdote: the historian Tony Jutt uh, had an NYU office. Uh, that was overlooking the World Trade Center. And uh, in the New Republic, uh, the first issue of the New Republic that came out after the 9-11 attacks, he wrote a very nice short essay, the first line of which 
was I looked out my NYU office building and saw the 21st century begin. Oh. And and I uh, I agree with uh, Bill on that as well. That uh, you know maybe the exactly the liniments of of what I think 9/11 has done. I, we might disagree slightly, but the the general. Uh, uh, observation that something major changed in the American psyche, you could say, and even in the broader shape of the world order with that attack, I agree with. You. I, I would. I I think you both make very good points and very stimulating uh, points. I I don't completely agree. I I do think, for example, that the the amount of money, for example, that we spent on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, while huge, is just a drop in the bucket compared to what we spend on entitlements. So I don't really think that our fiscal crisis is so much attributable to the wars, although it's often portrayed that way. I don't think that's actually accurate. Um, but um, but I, I, I accept that we overreacted uh, and and that it may have had... And then, of course, there have been the conspiracy theories that have grown out of 9-11 and that have been promoted by none other than our current president, who uh, said he thought that George W. Bush should have been impeached for lying us into war. So there's, you know, that whole line of thought began to corrode our sense of civic uh, uh, unity as well. So um, I don't know whether it would have happened anyway, but it certainly played into that. All right. We're going to, unless, Linda, you wanted to make a quick point of that. Okay. We're going we're gonna to now wrap up with um, something I hope we can do, maybe not every week, but from time to time. We're going to each list something that we have read in the past week or recently from somebody who's on the other side of the aisle that uh, we think is worthy. So, uh, Linda, you want to go first? I'll go ahead and go first. Um, this is uh, an article that appeared in the October 2nd uh, edition of the New York Times, and it's on the op-ed page. And I don't usually read the op-ed page of the New York Times. I have to admit, I read the news pages. But uh, I happened across this. It's Farhad Manju's why lefties should watch Fox News. Mm. Um, and as a former 14-year Fox News contributor, um, you know, I say this with some embarrassment now, um, although I was let go. So I guess that gives me a little <laughs> bit uh, uh, of leeway uh, because of my views on immigration. Mm -hmm. as, as one of the producers said, I confused people. I'm a conservative who's pro-immigrant. just very confusing to their audience. But yeah. Ronald I think Reagan then must have shocked the hell out of them. <laughs> but, but I think this is an important piece that uh, Farhad Maju has um, – you know, has written because it uh, it basically says if you want to understand what's going on with Trump's voters, you've got to understand their worldview and what they're seeing. And I I think it's always a good idea to read the other side or or, or watch the other side uh, on any issue. Damon, what about you? Well, um, my pick for this time will be uh, Ross Douthat's October 1st uh, column, also in the New York Times. <laughs> um, he writes two columns a week, but one of them is only online. This was his online column of the week titled The Corruption Before Trump, which I thought was a real tour de force. And I said so actually in a tweet promoting it uh, on uh, Tuesday. And it really, it's a really powerful, somewhat lengthy uh, opinion column about 
the kind of soft political corruption that marks uh, our politics and that, though nowhere near as bad as the corruption of the Trump administration, uh, creates a kind of foil that allows uh, Trump to uh, make his case for uh, the kind of the, the evils of the other side, uh, sort of as I was describing in terms of Joe Biden earlier. So it's a very uh, cogently argued piece, and I recommend it. All right. Bill, I assume yours is not from the New York Times. <laughs> no, as a matter of fact, I didn't bring the precise reference. Oh, so I okay. can't I can't remember where it was, but it was it was a short column, a pretty short column by Hugh Hewitt, uh, distinguishing sharply between an inquiry on the one hand and a rush to judgment on the other. And you know, urging on Democrats for the good of the country an inquiry that does not give the appearance of a rush to judgment. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's very sensible advice. All right. Well, um, the New York Times is going to get a trifecta this week because <laughs> mine, too, is the New York Times. I actually read a piece by Michelle Goldberg that I agreed with. I know it's uh, kind of shocking because this is the this is a first. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> 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 <Ain't> Trump grand. <laughs> the lions and the lambs die down yes, together. Exactly. <laughs> actually, my mother-in-law said that about it. My mother-in-law, who's a lifelong Democrat, when, when the Trump thing first happened and she saw my view. She said, well, at least it's bringing our family together. <laughs> 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 but, uh, but yeah, Michelle Goldberg had a piece where she talked about the troubles that the Biden family has had. And she acknowledged she herself does not want Biden to be the nominee, but that uh, she felt it was important to say that what was being the, the the, the allegations against him were not just scurrilous, they were lies, uh, that it was, it was the exact opposite of the truth. It's not that Biden intervened and bragged about it, as Trump said, bragged about uh, calling off a prosecutor or getting the uh, Ukrainians to call off a prosecutor who was going after his son. It was the opposite. He, he actually encouraged the Ukrainians to fire a prosecutor who was not going after his son. Well, anyway, I, I agreed with her column. So that's, that's a new thing. All right. Well, thank you all for being here. Um, and uh, thank you, listeners. And please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a rating. Actually, no, rave, <laughs> rave about us on iTunes. And uh, I also want to shout, give a shout out to Charlie Sykes, who um, inaugurated the Bulwark podcast and has amassed a huge listenership. And uh, uh, he is uh, he's required listening. So if you're not already listening to the Bulwark podcast, that's a must. Uh, so thank you all. And until next time.